0: i always prided myself on doing whatever music came my way, whatever interested me. Balinese gamelan, I go to Bali. Improvisational music, contemporary music, minimalism, whatever it is, if it was interesting to me, I would do it. And it was just like the one thing I wasn't doing was the music that I spent thousands of hours listening to and thinking about.
1: Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to The Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists looking for in-depth, career-accelerating conversations about all that's neat for clarinet. On today's show, I'm joined by Evan Zaporin, who was featured way back in 2016 on one of the first episodes of the podcast, we discuss his latest album project, which features some pop arrangements of music that he loves, why we both love and appreciate popular music, and how we come to understand and appreciate music. And of course, we also talk about his latest work, which is, or maybe not latest, but one of his more recent works, um, arranging David Bowie's album Black Star for a cello ensemble, and even how he met David Bowie, who actually sought him out after learning of his work with Bang on a Can. So, yes, you heard that right. David Bowie heard about Evan Zaporin's work with Bang bang on a can and sought him out to speak to him about it, which is a really interesting story to discuss here on the podcast. And it's so interesting because a lot of these stories end up coming up um, when I'm talking to these guests. I have no idea all the amazing experiences and stories that uh, people sort of have hiding just below the surface, and that's one of the reasons I, I love doing this program and and also returning to uh, previous guests to get even more from previous conversations. So, um, speaking of previous conversations, do head back and check out Evan Zaporin's original episode of the podcast. Um, Uh, We talked about his original recording of Steve Reich's New York Counterpoint, which we allude to this at the beginning, but he actually recorded in a snowstorm, which was a really interesting story as well. So before we get started, I'd like to thank our season sponsors and supporters for making the show possible and you for taking the time to listen to today's episode. Be sure to subscribe to Clarinet wherever you get your podcasts, tell your musical friends, students and colleagues, and I hope that you enjoy the show. As musicians, we're always looking to improve our playing and understanding of music, but we are often hesitant to work on the business and marketing side. If you're looking to make more money teaching, fill up the gaps in your schedule, and find ideal clients to work with who leave you energized instead of drained after a day of teaching, you need to check out clarinetist Kelly Reardon's Outside the Box community. Get a free 30-minute consultation and personalized recommendations from Kelly by mentioning Clarinet when you register at kellyreardon.com. That's K-E-L-L-Y R-I-O-R-D-A-N.com. Also, you might want to check out her recent podcast episode with me, number 174 of the Clarinet Podcast. The new Bakun Q-Series Clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series Clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. Use code clarinet at BAKUONMUSICAL.COM to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bacoon Q-Series or Protege Clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at Bacoonmusical.com and use code clarinet at checkout. So I'm back today with the wonderful composer, conductor, and clarinetist Evan Zaporin, who's coming to us today from Boston, and this is his second appearance on the Clarinet podcast. Evan, welcome back to the show.
0: Thanks, Sean. It's great to be back.
1: So, you know, what's so funny. Before we got started uh, with the interview today, we were talking about how long it's been since the first one and, and also how kind of strange it is that the world has changed so much because I remember when I first started this, I think podcasting, I'm not sure if it was new, but it was definitely new to clarinetists. I think. And um, I, I used to send out these really elaborate instructions on like how we're going to conduct the interview and what's going to happen. And It's funny because I just don't seem to have to do that anymore because people seem to just know what a podcast is and how it's going to work and all that. So, um, But I'm wondering. So in the past six years since we first chatted, a lot of stuff has changed clearly in the world and with, with everything. But uh, what have you been up to? How has your career shifted? And uh, just let's get a really big update, I guess. It's been a long time
0: well there've been as with everybody there's been a couple big shifts because whatever i thought i was doing before march of 2020 uh you know came to a grinding halt and then like everybody else on the planet had to reinvent and and I, that was kind of a healthy thing so when i last when last we spoke i think that i had just started getting involved with uh conducting this orchestra that i was founding the ambient orchestra and uh, and i was really following that path pretty intensively between then and 2020. So we did this large David Bowie project where I made a cello concerto out of Black Star, his last album, and uh, did that in several different venues, including Central Park in New York and with the Barcelona Symphony and at the Adelaide Fringe Festival, got a really fantastic group of young musicians in Boston together to work on it. We really were starting to feel like we uh, had something going. I mean, things go slow with a group that size, but we had this amazing concert uh, in in February of 2020 down at Strathmore Hall in in the DC area. And, you know, the place was packed and people really were responding and we were all psyched. And it sort of occurred to us that like half the group had these really bad colds or flus, but whatever, we still all went out for beers afterwards and stuff like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then then uh, the world all came crashing down suddenly playing music with anybody, let alone with a, with an orchestra, I uh, was completely impossible. So, you know, uh, there was, a, as with everybody, a lot of reinvention. But what happened with me was I rediscovered uh, the love of playing the instrument. So I really got deeply back into just practicing in a way that I hadn't really since uh, my Bang in a Can days, which, you know, had ended in 2012. And um, was also rediscovering um, the music that I really loved for my youth that I'd never gotten the chance to play, which was pop music. So I started making these multi-clarinet arrangements for uh, bunches of clarinets. And it was, was, you know, sort of started as, a well, this is the kind of thing I can do at home alone, you know. <laughs> but then I just really uh, got into it so that by, you know, by the time things started opening up, I basically had an album of multi-track uh clarinet material, so I released that, and then uh out of the blue, um the Philip glass people got in touch with me and said, Hey, you know, we just found this old Philip glass piece for three clarinets that seems to have never been performed uh, you want to take a you want to take a look at it and I was like, yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I do <laughs> oh, yeah, so
0: that was in August of last year, and they like a year a year like ten uh fourteen months ago, they sent it to me. They let, They told me about it in early August. They sent it to me about the 15th of August. I went into the studio with it a week later and recorded it and uh, just put it out a few months ago. And I've started performing that. And uh, then I thought, well, that's that was super fun and awesome. And um, so I've done a, you know, and of course, I had done Steve's piece years earlier, New York Counterpoint. I figured, OK, well, I've done Reich and Glass. I really should do a Terry Riley clarinet piece. So there isn't one. So I contacted him. He's in Japan now. And I was like, hey, would you consider writing me a piece? And uh, so now we're working on that. He's written the piece and I'm recording that and working on that. And I'll be premiering this uh, kind of large work of Terry Riley's um, next month at Ars Musica in Brussels.
1: That's fantastic. I didn't know those last two things. So I'm so glad we connected because uh, I love both of those composers. I actually had Sam Sadaginsky on the show a couple months ago. He's uh, now playing with this Philip Glass Ensemble, of course, out in uh, New York, I guess. But uh, that's really cool. I didn't realize that Terry had never written a solo clarinet piece.
0: Well, he's written, I mean, he's done a lot of saxophone work because he was a saxophonist himself. So there's, and I had actually done an arrangement of, of Poppy No Good, which is one of his kind of major kind of phase pieces for saxophone, but, and a lot of his pieces are open orchestration. So, you know, a lot of people have played Terry's music. They've played in C or they've played other pieces of his, but, uh, and I, I've played other pieces. I've commissioned a Gamelan piece from him and I did in C many, many times and, and other pieces by him was involved in the, making his piece autodreamographical tales into an ensemble piece, but no, never a clarinet piece. So now I have one and now. You know, eventually, once I let go of it, <laughs> <it's horrible. laughs> everyone else can have
1: it too. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to hearing it. Um, I'll have to check out that glass one too. I hadn't heard of that, but so last time we talked too, it's, it does seem so long ago. But I must have just finished my CD project where I recorded some some glass pieces. I was playing marimba. I'm not sure if I ever sent you that, but I'll have to.
0: Yeah, I'd love to hear that. Well, this one, this one's called "Best Out of Three, and you can find it, uh, you know, everywhere you find music these days. It's um, what I did with it was I did it as he wrote it, which was at a it's marked quarter equals one twenty. So I recorded it that way, uh, and then I thought, and this is actually something Sam might have talked about himself because this is a process that the Glass Ensemble goes through all the time. That they play his music and they go, uh, "It's good, but it should be faster." <laughs> so then I I redid it at one sixty, and then just decided to release both because it's it's actually a really interesting piece at both tempi.
1: It's funny you say that, because I actually sometimes feel the same way with glass. But then I find that almost the reverse happens when you slow it down. Like it gets interesting again in its own way at slower speeds or higher speeds. Like it always just kind of works. Um, but yeah, at medium tempos, it doesn't seem to <laughs> it doesn't seem to work like that. It's faster or slower is always really cool. But then in the middle, it's it's uh, it's, it's an interesting type of music because it it doesn't really latch on to you unless it's very rhythmic and you can kind of hear those interplays
0: it's just him and bach that i find that you know that basically every tempo you can make every tempo work you know or at least, you know like whereas you know like with steve reich's music or basically every other composer on the planet like really you know including my own generally the tempo is the tempo i mean there's a little range but you can't just play the moonlight sonata you know at Bavachi tempo <laughs> or
1: you yeah. know well, the tempo is almost part of the texture sometimes, where it gives like, and especially, so we'll, we'll dive into pop music a little bit in a second, but um, it's like that with pop music, especially like when you hear a certain drum beat or a certain guitar riff, like if it's not on tempo, it's not that song, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. Before we move on, though, I, I found what you said so interesting about the, the pandemic kind of shutting things down, but also opening up and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit because like some people like myself I pretty much shut down and just stayed shut down for the whole time like we had we have two kids now and it was a difficult long experience but I'm interested to get inside of the heads of those people who did sort of find motivation and were able to come out of this with you know in your case it sounds like several album projects and new pieces and and uh, so do you do you have any like rituals for for motivation are you big into like meditation or what's your sort of secrets secret sauce
0: <laughs> i i intend on having you know i'm being big into, into meditation <laughs> <laughs> but i'm like one of those i more of my thing is tai chi but i go through thing at, at which i started doing uh in the early 80s because i was like a twitcher you know like my leg was constantly shaking but uh then i it just uh i found it applied to all sorts of parts of my life but i'm like one of these people where like i could I did Tai Chi like every day for like, you know, a decade and still didn't feel like I was an expert at it still felt like I was really a beginner wouldn't have ever dreamed of teaching it or anything like that. And then it fell away and it would come back. And I, I did refine it again during the, the first part of the lockdown and I've kind of lost it again. <laughs> but so, you know, I mean, I don't want to make any, bu- any claims uh, to anything be the otherwise, I mean, I go through, I, I do know for me, that like just doing a little bit of something every day starts to instill better habits. That's a really obvious truth, but you know, like whatever it is practicing or composing or what, you know, like that sort of beating your head against a wall period where it's like, I don't have anything to say. And this feels terrible. You just have to do that. And then it starts feeling better and you want to do it more, but it's so easy to fall off of that. And then it's just as hard to find it again. So I guess I feel like you have to, be easy on yourself, you know, like just because you haven't been doing it for a week, a month, six months, a year, whatever, doesn't mean you can't start again. It also, it takes, there's a very particular type of person that never has those fallow periods. And I'm not one of them. I have a lot of them. But uh, look, for me, the lockdown happened that year. I had actually, I had been conducting the MIT symphony. Because the regular conductor, Adam Boyles, who's a great conductor and a great guy, was on leave and it was just like, wait, I can do an orchestra. And I was really interested to see what I could do with like a just a straight out-of-the-box classical orchestra. Like, how could I find an interface between what I was interested in and what they did? How could I connect with, you know, uh the type of people that want to play in orchestras who are obviously really fine musicians, but normally into to music that is not my focus. And you know, that was a great adventure. And when that just ceased, like literally, you know, like the lockdown happened the day before one of our concerts. And, you know, I still had the responsibility as a teacher for these 60 people who were still in my class, (laughs) suddenly at an orchestra class, but it was like an online class where we didn't even know what Zoom was. Nobody knew what the hell was going on. And it would have been, we were at least, you know, I don't know if people remember this, but there was so much chaos at that time in terms of like that it would have been perfectly fine to say like, you can't do an orchestra online. So we're just abandoning that class. Nobody would have minded, but I really felt like I needed to connect with these students for at least the rest of the semester because their worlds were thrown far more out of whack than mine was. I have a nice house in the woods. I'm in a happy marriage. You know, I got a dog and, uh, I was fine with, I mean, didn't like the world going to hell in a handbasket. And obviously it was horrible when anybody I knew got sick or people died that, you know, but like on a personal day-to-day level, the lockdown, at least for the first few months was totally fine with me, you know, but I felt like, um, I really needed to kind of keep these students connected to music, connected to each other. And so I thought like, what is it? As opposed to like trying to do something like, you know, rehearse. I mean, we also tried to do that. Everybody was trying to figure out how you were going to play online. And that was a very frustrating and sort of, you know, quixotic experience. But I just thought like, what are you trying to really instill? What are you doing in an orchestra, like particularly a student orchestra, you know? while well, you're trying to make people connect to music, you're trying to make people connect to each other, you're trying to like improve musicianship skills, you're trying to improve, you know, technical skills of one sort or another, you're trying to, you know, instill appreciation of the repertoire, and you can do all that in other ways. So I just began to think of other ways to do that. So sort of similar to what you were doing with your podcast, I was like, okay, you're all going to get these microphones, you know, and we're all going to learn how, you know, how you record you know, basically I had all these classical musicians who never thought to learn this stuff. Like I was teaching them recording techniques, teaching them, you know, multi-tracking. And we were we were putting pieces together that way, but I also didn't want to do the, you know, the sort of Hollywood Squares thing uh, to a click track. Like I really wanted to try to do like organic performances. So we did things like I made, I used like, you know, ambient pieces, or everybody would record their track in isolation. Then I'd put them together and mix them. And I had students who had certain other skills do remixes of stuff. A bunch of kids did Beatles arrangements, you know, for subsets of the orchestra. And then I made like a really like um, specific like tempo map of uh, of the slow movement of Beethoven's um, Seventh Symphony, and you know, just. And figured out this whole way of recording it where like it was sort of like tag team, so like I would set the tempo and then have like the principal players like record to this dynamic tempo, so it actually had kind of natural oscillations in it. We'd mix that, then we'd send it to the rest of the strings, they'd record to that, and we send you know, and so we built the music in a way that actually involved listening to each other and not just everybody playing to a click, sending it to kind of central casting and having it put together. So and then by the time that ended, uh, I also did a couple other kind of interesting sort of MIT oriented, um, like online music projects. So then uh, when that ended, that's about when I started feeling like, uh, oh, now I can start doing something of my own. So just started doing a lot of clarinet playing and arranging and things like that. But part of it was also the freedom of not having deadlines and performances and the kind of weird surprise for me and i didn't miss that at all i i didn't miss performing and i and and i would start to think about like how much of the experience of being a performer involved doing all sorts of things that you didn't particularly want to do like sit in a you know Stand in a line to get on an airplane or like, you know, (laughs) like figure out what to do with the other 22 hours of the day or, you know, like I and maybe it had been because I had been on the road so much, uh, you know, for the 20 years previous that I, at least for me, at least for then, I didn't miss it. And so and I definitely realized also that I wanted to start making music just because I wanted to make it. And like that just removing that whole thing about what anybody else thought about it was an interesting challenge and also involved times going like, well, maybe I don't want to do anything, you know? So, so that's, and what emerged from that was the pop channel record, which I ended up uh, feeling great about. But even with that, as I was doing it, I wasn't even thinking of releasing it. It was more just like, this is a kind of fun, interesting thing to do and a way to connect to to music that I really like. Um, and it was only because certain people who I really Uh, respect when i'd send it to them just like hey i did this what do you think they'd go you know i like this a lot like you really should put this on like really i don't know if i can do that like can i really put out a a record of just like covers of like obscure 70s rock (laughs) (laughs) tunes you know on the clarinet like that that is nothing the world is waiting for you know but
1: (laughs) but why not yeah why not
0: yeah and i'm really glad i did i mean it's it's not like it set the world on fire in terms of streams or sales or anything like that, but I just feel really good about it. And the times that I have performed it, it's just felt great to be on stage doing it. And um and it also just felt really fulfilling to it was like a gap in your vision that you don't know is there. Because I'd always prided myself on doing whatever music came my way, you know, whatever interested me. Balinese Gamble and go to Bali, you know, like uh Learn to play jazz, like get involved with, you know, with improvisational music, contemporary music, minimalism, whatever it is, you know, like if it was interesting to me, I would do it. And it was just like the one thing I wasn't doing was the music that I spent, you know, thousands of hours listening to and thinking about as a kid and throughout my life. And it just felt like saying, well, you know, there are no clarinets in pop music was not a sufficient answer to that.
1: I love that, though. and I love how you're kind of focusing on what you want to do. And after some months, I actually felt the same thing slipping away, like the expectation of society to do things. And and I can't say in a lot of ways I missed a lot of performing either, because I found that a lot of the performing I was doing was not the pieces I wanted to do. It was like I got called for XYZ gig and I would go play that piece or go do that teaching thing or whatever. And it, it wasn't really like stuff that was to the core of kind of what I wanted to be doing and and uh, so after I think it was about a year um, I actually started taking some guitar lessons and working on my own personal songwriting projects and some producing and stuff like that too which I'm you know kind of very new with but it's also very interesting to be working on with someone who's motivating in that way who any one of my I feel like local colleagues wouldn't you know (laughs) want to work with me on that level or understand those kind of interests and things like that so it's nice because you're able to get out and kind of, I guess I had this experience with podcasting for years, but like talking to people who aren't in your direct vicinity. So the the whole Zoom thing really kind of opened up the world for a lot of people, I think. And suddenly they're talking to like, I never would have thought of taking guitar lessons from a guy in LA. <laughs> like, what? Well, why am I doing that? You know? And uh, so it just was kind of interesting, but it's been kind of fun. But part of this, actually, the reason I, one reason that I was excited you got back in touch with me is because... Um, with doing a lot of this writing. It's funny that he said to me at one point, like, oh, you know, well, what about instrumentation fleshing out some of these songs? And I'd never thought about using my clarinet in the music for some reason. And um, I don't know why, kind of same as you. I mean, it's not really normally used in in kind of, you know, singer, songwriter, pop writing, whatever kind of stuff. Um, So I started looking for some albums just randomly that kind of had more kind of horns on them, I guess you could say, and the algorithm on, Apple Music somehow led me to Black Star, which I realized I'd never listened to at all. So I'm kind of a late Bowie fan, but as soon as I put it on, I was like, man, this is incredible. So I, I think that he, I think that we spoke actually, like, I can't remember, I think it was March, 2016. So back then Mo- Bowie must have, you know, released that album a couple months ago, but we never talked about it because it wasn't something I was into. And then just after that, you must have done this project. So I was going through iTunes, or Apple Music, I guess they call it now, and I was listening to, you know, Blackstar incessantly, and suddenly I started looking for, as I always do, I look for covers or other versions now. I was like, oh, this is really cool. And I looked closer at the cover one time and I was like, wait, Evan did this. Right. <laughs> so I was like oh, a cool no way. I'm getting to kind of discover that, you know.
0: Oh well, that's fantastic because, you know, that it's nice that you found it without knowing it was me and still liked it.
1: So <laughs> Thanks. Well, yeah, because I was listening and I was like, this is really interesting. I'm so glad that there's a a version like this that's kind of, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I always love to listen to covers of songs as I'm listening to songs, because I find sometimes it sort of lets you unfurl it like an onion more like, okay, this is what that person heard in it, or this is how it could be reimagined or, and same reason I like live versions, especially Radiohead songs, like they have a song called the National Anthem, which the, the album version is very kind of strange and horns heavy, but the live version is like syncing with radio and a bunch of weird stuff, and they have totally different energies. But then you can listen back and forth and kind of hear it collaborating a bit, if you will. But but uh, so I guess that's just kind of my intro to how I got back into your your Black Star after six years of not realizing it really even existed. But uh, I wanted to look for that kind of music that had horns. So if if, if you're listening, you haven't checked out Bowie's Black Star, definitely do it. It's with a guy named Donny McCaslin. Um, and his band who worked with Bowie and it's just a lot of saxophone heavy and in a nice way, not in like a, you know, because it can be saxophone in in pop music can come across as, you know, what's that song everyone always plays the the one but it's actually very tastefully done, very well done, really kind of contemporary, jazzy at times and other times just like straight pop and it's a cool album But I want to talk to you a little bit about like sort of your love for not only Bowie but other pop artists. I find that Sometimes it's it's tough for you know classical or non pop musicians to to find kind of a passion in that or an interest or to to accept it almost but um I've always been really interested in it and I can tell that you are too and and I'd like to just hear a little bit about your experience with Black Star and and Bowie and working with uh Donnie which you had the chance to do it sounds like as well and just all that Black Star stuff.
0: <laughs> okay, well uh yeah, sure. So I had been a Bowie fan actually When I was a teenager, my father uh, bought a small record store in Evanston, Illinois. actually bought it somewhere else. And then we moved it to Evanston, Illinois, where I lived. And uh, it was called Slip Disc. And it was right next door to this little club called Amazing Grace, which was this amazing, as the name implies, uh, was like the... I don't know how I could have been so lucky as to have have that place fall into my life so amazing grace was had been started by these northwestern students who had been putting out concerts at northwestern and then they graduated and they basically got this little storefront it's like a double storefront like in the equivalent of a strip mall and cleared it out put a really good sound system no seats uh great piano and evanston was a dry town at that time people don't remember that or care but uh so as a result they couldn't serve liquor and that meant that they didn't wasn't like other jazz clubs where you know it was kind of forbidding for a teenager to go so it was kind of like a hippie hangout and they had everybody there they had the coolest lineup because it it was basically like ecm was just kicking in so they had keith jarrett as a soloist and with his quartet they had pat metheny right after his first couple records came out gary burton all those guys plus Odetta, all these people from the kind of folk and blues scene, you know, cause I worked in the record store next door. I got to actually like, you know, meet all these people and hang out with them and, you know, see multiple sets, you know? So when Keith Jarrett was there, I was going to like two Keith Jarrett sets a night for four days, you know, and McCoy Tyner Mingus played there. I mean, it was just insane. Eddie Harris. Uh, and in the record store, you know, we opened this record store fall of, 75 I think Uh, I may have the year wrong but within rapid succession Blood on the Tracks Young Americans uh, Earth, Wind & Fire That's the Way of the World like just this explosion of amazing music was coming out like I mean to start working on a record in a record store when Blood on the Tracks and Wish You Were Here came out and that being your first real exposure to Dylan or Pink Floyd or you know Et cetera, et cetera, It was just mind-blowing, you know. Uh, and that, I was also, you know, so at the same, it's this weird sort of firewall where at the same time in school, I was being introduced to Ives and Steve Reich and Alvin Lussier and Stravinsky. I had this whole other education going on in this really amazing period of of, of rock music. And uh, Bowie put out the, the what are now called the Berlin Uh, trio of records uh, but which just came out in startling quick succession low and heroes and and, uh, lodger and i was you know i was really deeply into those records and as a result i was a bowie fan i really wasn't like i was too young and too straight of a kind of person in general to kind of get into like the transgressive like uh you know ziggy stardust stuff at that time so for me it was more of course like the berlin records were like him you know either coked out or trying to get over being coked out you know and (laughs) kind of deeply dark deeply dark strange records but i love those records so then i was just a bowie fan straight up from then on in and that carried through for a long time uh then as with a lot of people i kind of lost it and even to the point where like toward the end of my Bang in a can days. He actually got a little bit interested in our band, and he came to some of our concerts. And he booked us for a festival he was uh, curating in New York. And so I met him a couple times. No way. Yeah, I got the photos to prove it.
1: <laughs> you uh, have to send me these they, photos. We, this is unexpected. Uh, I, I talked this. about <laughs> I talked about
0: Nankara with uh, with Bowie because when we played it when we played at, uh, uh, at Zankel Hall, he wanted to come. He asked if he could enter via backstage because he didn't want to have to deal with sitting in the audience you know so he just came and hung out and he just we just talked about Conla and carol this is crazy and, uh, yeah but i mean you know don't get me wrong <laughs> uh, he didn't give me his phone number you know well, we didn't st- hang out <laughs> you know, Still, like, no,
1: that's amazing like bowie was interested in your music like
0: yeah yeah on the other hand he didn't call us to play on his record he called Donnie. and then, you know so but even at that time, like I wasn't so into the music he was doing at that period. And, you know, I kind of thought like, cause that happens with you know, with rock stars. It happens with anybody, you know. Uh there's periods that you get into and then and then they, they seem to whatever thread you had with them seems to be lost and you find it again. But what happened was with Blackstar, and I don't know if we talked about this or not, because I'm not sure I knew how significant that record was going to be for me when I spoke to you, but this but in January of 2016. Uh, My wife, Christine Southworth, and I had been at this artist residency in Florida at the Hermitage, which is on the beach in Sarasota, south of Sarasota. And there was this Canadian writer there named uh, Jonathan Garfinkel, who's now a good friend. And he and, you know, when you get in those situations, you try to find commonalities, you know, and then maybe cooking or they may be like, you know, playing darts or something, you know, but one of the things just the people around us all kind of found to talk about was David Bowie. And Jonathan was really into David Bowie. And this was January of 2016. and We're all staying in this little place. And he's just talking about Bowie, this Bowie, that. And he's like, you know, Bowie's got these two new videos out there, very dark. He looks very sick. He's, you know, uh, I mean, it's weird. It looks like they made him up like he's a terminally ill person, you know. And he was talking about these And then the record came out and we were actually staying in two halves of a house. There was like a duplex of a house right on the beach. And it was a rinket kind of rickety old Florida house. And he was playing, he was alternating black star with a Kanye West record. That's all he was listening to over and over again. (laughs) and To the point of like, Oh, this is really annoying. You know, like, we're musicians here. We're trying to work. We got this guy like that. But then I started practicing. Like the Bowie was coming through the floorboards. I hadn't actually even heard it, but I started practicing to it coming through the floorboards. Just like I'm just going to improvise to what I'm. You know what's coming. What I'm hearing from the next room. And I was doing that for several days. Right. And then he left. Jonathan left because his uh, residency was over. And then the day he left was the day Bowie died. And so Jonathan left and I went to sleep and I woke up at 1 a.m. and I looked at my phone and I had this phone alert that said, you know, British rock star David Bowie has passed away. And I thought it was a dream because I, you know, Bowie had just been on so many, you know, that had been what we were all talking about. Everybody has their experience with, you know, kind of Icon Stein, but that was my Bowie dying experience. And so we were just... It was so present for me, and so what happened was that um, we're just wandering around in a daze, like what's going on, and like reconnect. Suddenly, this process where you know you're spending like all day, like watching YouTube videos of David Bowie and of imitations of David Bowie, and you know, like uh, you know, cover versions. Exactly what you were describing, just like you know, deep dive into David Bowie, and then people started contacting me, you know, like old friends. I was thinking about you as I was thinking about we heard this record and, you know, and and everybody and I realized like everybody was kind of connecting about this, you know, just using that as like this. And I as this way of realizing some era was over because David Bowie from my generation, I'm 62. Right. So, you know, I remember the first time I heard the Beatles, but the Beatles broke up early, you know, and I definitely, you know, but Bowie was just always there. And he was so much what he represented as an artist, even if you didn't like this record or that record, like just the way in which he kind of went about living his life artistically and doing his work artistically was just such a huge, you know, part of the atmosphere. So I got back up to Boston a couple weeks later, and I was realizing like that classical musicians, I suppose this is of a thread with the pole Pop Channel record eventually, but, did not have an outlet to express you know like if you had a band then okay you know let's do uh, life on mars or heroes or whatever you know like there was a way to do like
1: some cover songs or something like that yeah
0: yeah <clears throat> right but for classical musicians there wasn't and so actually it was a, another friend of mine who just kind of said yeah i don't why isn't anybody doing those phil glass bowie symphonies so i thought like well wait i I like teach at a university that's in winter session and I have access to a thousand seat hall and I have, I, you know, I could actually like put something together quite quickly and we could do it as like a cancer benefit. So we died of cancer and I'll just, you know, I I talked to the glass people and they, you know, agreed to let me use the music for a really reduced fee. And basically I just sort of put the word out this was January of 2016, like, uh, I'm gonna put this together. Here's the rehearsals, here's the concert. Whoever wants to play, let me know. And I just figured I'd take whoever I got. But, you know, some of the best freelance musicians in Boston responded, you know, cause I knew, I knew them from Boston Modern Orchestra Project or just from being around here so long. And it was more just that everybody felt this way. It's like, oh wait, here's a way to do something to kind of channel these feelings. And so within like three weeks, we had this like 80 piece orchestra and we had the music and we had a hall and we had a structure and we did, and, uh, you know, we did the low symphony and we did hero symphony and it was kind of like a, it felt really cathartic. So that's what started me in that, in that whole thing, you know, so part of it was, well, that felt really good, but the other part of it was like, wow. It's cool to have an orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I was like, was awesome." I got to keep this going. So, meanwhile, I had actually, I work a lot with my advisor, the cellist, who had been in Bangor Academy with me for the first decade of that group, and we had done a record several years earlier called "Uncovered," which had been all cover tunes that I'd arranged for her. I produced the record and did the arrangements, and I was looking for a new project to do with her, and you know, Black Star. Is such a unique record and like you were saying when you were describing it you know it has these jazz elements but it's not really jazz it doesn't really sound like any other record the sound world is really unique
1: that's one thing i like about it by the way is it's it's one of the most unique sounds yeah. i think i've ever heard
0: yeah it's it's incredible and then i was thinking about bowie's voice and like realized you know he's got you know, about the widest range since Ima Sumac of any singer, you know, like, I mean, and it basically is the same range as, well, as a bass clarinet or as a cello, you know? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I was looking for this project to do with Maya. And I just woke up, this would have been like March of 2016, and I woke up thought, like, it could be a cello concerto. Wouldn't have to change a note. Like, not like the lo- you know, I mean, I love the low symphony, and I like the hero symphony. And I haven't come to terms with the Lodger Symphony, but I mean, I I totally like get the transformative thing where you take a piece as a basis for a piece. But I thought Black Star, I just want to do Black Stop, Star. like start at the beginning and go to the end and just change the sound world, which is already perfect as it is, but just reimagine it on a larger palette. So Maya agreed. And we put that together and that's how that project started. And the other thing about that project was this was like the only time this has ever happened to me where, because usually what happens is you have these ideas and they go, oh, this is an amazing idea. This will be great. And then it'll take us all over the world and then you do it and then it's over. You know? yeah. <laughs> and in this case, like, I mean, I'm a terrible, like the way you're supposed to do things is that you're supposed to build the infrastructure first, right? And I never do that because I'm just too impatient. I just want to do the project, right? So we set this thing up. I didn't have permission from the Bowie people. We eventually got it, but I didn't have it. I didn't have an, you know, a booking agent or a manager because I don't and not out of principle, but because I'm too whatever random to do that. But I just thought, we'll do this. And, you know, somebody will hear it. And next thing we know, we'll be taking it to Europe and all over the world. And, and So we did it like two weeks later, the Barcelona symphony found us on Facebook and said, yeah, we heard the, you know, we heard about this and we want you to come do it here. Wow. And I was like, really? Okay. That's, you know, so we did that. And then, uh, then we did get organized because then a, a really wonderful booking agent named David Middleton contacted us and said, I think I can get you some gigs doing this. And then a similar thing happens. Like, well, how am I going to get an orchestra to tour? And I thought, you know, I could do this as a class, like with one of the conservatories in town and, you know, still pay the players, but they'll be happy to do it because they're students and it'll be a good experience for them. Uh, and so I, I thought, well, no, nobody will ever agree to it, but I'll, I'll see if I can set up a meeting. So I, I went to the Boston conservatory and I contacted the dean there. It was almost like a due diligence in like being, learning how to hear no like I, the purpose of the meeting was for me to go in and be told that they couldn't do it. <laughs> but I went in and I explained the idea and they said, sounds great. Let's do it. How do we do it? And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, like I had no idea what to do next. Like
1: I wasn't expecting oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> <you're
0: right. laughs> okay. Let me get back to you. So, uh, and again, I have to say that it's great to have like, a, you know, an incredibly well-organized and smart partner in your life because Christine Southworth, my wife you know, really took the ball in. And she herself is a composer and an artist and had better things to do. But, you know, she took over as kind of producer of it. And so we got this great group together. They were given, it was part of the Boston Conservatory, like modern music program. And basically what they, part of what they did that fall was they rehearsed with me and then we went on tour. And, you know, it was really great, fantastic. It was amazing also to realize that like, There is progress in the world, at least in terms of like musicians, because you were mentioning before classical musicians and pop music used to be you could not write certain rhythms for classical musicians to play like they could play them, but it really would not sound good. It would not sound like, you know, just simple things like a four over three or like a certain kind of syncopation or a certain kind of articulation. You just could not do it. It would just sound dorky. But 20-year-old musicians today, at least these 20-year-old musicians, and some were 25, and I had a couple of, like, friends who were older as well, but they did not have a problem with these rhythms and these phrases. And they did not have a problem with me saying, you know, like, to, you know, the flutist, like, yeah, make that sound weirder, you know, get more overtones in your sound, like, you know, make the sound kind of crackle or break up, you know, like... They were game for anything, and they also did not. And then they would, you know, leave that rehearsal where they were doing Bowie, and they'd go do Fernie How, or they'd go do, you know, they'd do recitals where they were doing Steve Reich and Milton Babbitt. Like those wars were irrelevant to them, and I'm sure they have wars of their own. But like just seeing the skill level of these players was really inspiring, and seeing their openness to doing this kind of thing was really inspiring. Plus. It was just super fun to take a bunch of uh, people that age on the road, most of whom had never done, you know, and look, it was, you know, we did like five concerts. It wasn't like, you know, getting on a bus and like going around to Lollapalooza or something, you know, it was like, (laughs) it still took a particular kind of presenter to do this project, but anyway, so that's, that's the story. And then we, you know, it was still going. It was still picking up momentum. But now we're just—you uh, know—now it's been over two years. Like you know, it was just dead. It just got killed by the pandemic, and and then it took a long—and actually, sadly, maybe not sadly, because maybe they're happy. Like a lot of the of the people in the band, some are some are playing in symphonies across the country, but others have gotten out of being musicians as their primary profession because there just was no work.
1: Well, this has happened to a lot of people from the pandemic. I personally know locally many people who they pursued kind of a second career path because they had to during the pandemic. And I think they've sort of decided not to go back. Maybe they've realized that they're more comfortable. I mean, fair enough. You're more comfortable making some money and getting your your needs met. And maybe some people also like started a family and things like that. So, I mean, it's been very rough.
0: Yeah, it happens. And like I said, sometimes it's not a bad thing, but uh Yeah. And and I don't really know. I mean, I do know that like some of the, the established freelance players, at least in Boston have now, it's all come back and they seem to be busier than ever. And they've also, uh, because the other thing I've been doing, I don't know how much if you want to hear about it, but the, what another totally bizarre thing that came out of this was that the, like I said, I had a couple of like more peers playing like the principal string parts and two of them, uh, this violinist Sasha Callahan and her husband uh, cellist Leo Agucci turned out to have this really great um, thing going on, where they had started this ensemble called the Sheffield Ensemble that just does house concerts, and and they had really I had not realized like they built it up to they're doing like fifty or sixty concerts a year in the Boston area of chamber music, and it's a good portion of their income, and you know they have a not for profit and they fundraise and 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 they just took control of their musical life. I mean, these are basically like just very high quality freelance musicians, classical players who figured out that they just didn't want to be dependent on you know whoever called them or whatever contractor, and they still do that stuff, right, So they're still running around doing all the regional orchestras and do the Boston and Pops and this and on the other. But they found you know a way to kind of make it work where they could actually. Play chamber music, play it multiple times, uh, make a you know, and they said to me, Hey, you know, um let's do a let's do a series of concerts together. We'll do B in, which is a piece of mind for bass clarinet and string quartet. And would you this is a weird thing to ask you, but uh would you consider doing the Mozart quintet with us? And I was like, Well, I haven't played it since I was eighteen. And I haven't played like music, you know. Like nineteenth or eighteenth century music, pretty much since I was thirty. But sure, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so uh, so that was so that was supposed to happen in the spring of twenty twenty, but then it didn't. And I was like, okay, well at least I got out of that one. But then it came back this year, and we did it. And so I spent the last the latter part of the spring and the first part of the summer playing that program about twenty times, all around Boston like all in private homes, a couple libraries and things like that. And it was really like a, a huge discovery for me to play Mozart after not having played Mozart for four years. Maybe it was, I was very glad I never got rid of my A clarinet. <laughs> but, <laughs> But like, it was like the opposite side of the pop channel thing because I just felt like, I mean, I had more with, I had actively like pushed that, way of playing out of my life and so finding a way back into it was like finding like an extra room in your house that you didn't know you had you know
1: it's so interesting to hear about the house concert idea too because i remember there's a guest i talked to about must have been also about six years ago and it's embarrassing but i'm forgetting his name he's a conductor uh, Stephen something i'll it'll probably come to me but um he was saying basically what you're describing is like in order to make money off of your own kind of concert series, like you have to play it more than once. Like you plan a program and you book that program in 20 places and suddenly you've taken your efforts and kind of like in an entrepreneurial way, you've opened it up to so many more people and it really kind of allows you to build something for yourself. And I, I think that's a really interesting kind of way to, to play music is the house concerts too. Cause a lot of people, um, they, they do enjoy that you know so how how big an ensemble did they take along you said it was a, a quintet
0: yeah uh, but i mean i would say more than that i mean this is the thing that i that anybody that's in a band knows this and i knew this from my you know garage bands of my youth but then i knew it from bang i can all-stars that you don't really play a piece if you play it once you don't really play a piece if you play it twice or three times you really need to play a piece over and over again to kind of discover it. It's sort of like what you were saying about listening to various versions of a tune, like just like you don't really know a tune until you've heard a lot of different, you know, you know, until you reach the point where it's just you're not even thinking about all the kind like, wait, wait, there's a tempo change here or what did I do here? Oh, yeah. You know, what's marked on the page or whatever, but you're really just inside of it. And the music on the page is just a reminder of something that's actually coming from you and the other players. Uh, I mean I, I don't want to overstate it obviously there's you can get something out of a single performance don't get me wrong but there's something you find artistically and emotionally and expressively when you play a piece multiple times because it's not like it gets fixed it's like you actually it becomes elastic in a certain way like you begin to discover like it becomes a part of you in a different way
1: That's exactly, though, about listening to music, I find too. And that's why I knew the Bowie record was good, is because I found getting into it very fatiguing, if that makes sense. I I don't know if you experienced this, but when I'm listening to a music that I can tell is going to be really good, I often have to listen to it multiple, many, many, many times. And I often don't listen to the record in entirety. Like, if I get hooked, for example, with the Bowie record, like on the first track, I got really into it. I found that I didn't have the energy to get past track three until about two weeks into listening to the album. Cause I was like, there's so much here. It's so, there's so much going on. And then eventually I would work my way through and, and, uh, but I find that you open these kind of layers of the music. And if I just listened to it once, I wouldn't have ever had that. So it's surprising that people do prepare music so much and then play a recital and then put it away.
0: Yeah. It's a weird artifact. It's not natural. It's, I mean, it's a weird artifact of the way music works and, and, uh, but even in teaching like, uh, just, you know, classes that are more for listening. Like I'm teaching now a class on global pop music. And I like say to the students, I'm not going to give you long listening lists. I'm going to give you short listening lists, And I want you to listen to the music a number of times. But also, I mean, this is a little bit harder to explain maybe, but like, I think there's also value in listening to it in different ways. Like, I mean, I think there's like the concentrated, okay, I'm sitting down and I'm listening to this. But then there's also like listening to it when you're driving around or when you're like, you know, vacuuming the house or whatever you know, just letting it like seep into your consciousness because often when you do that, you know we all have so many filters in for what we're listening for that you just miss whole aspects of the music because you're listening for the thing that you heard the last time, and sometimes you need it to hit you like I mean, I'll give you a really good example, so you know, like um, I did these non car arrangements years ago. We and my group uh bang in a can, ended up recording on the, the blast record I did with them, which was big, beautiful, dark, and scary. and We played these pieces many, many times. The reason I did them I'd always liked Nankar, but I was at a dinner party where Nankar was playing in the background, and this one number eleven came on, and I thought and it was soft in the distance, and I thought it was a weather report track, you know like and I thought. Wait, I thought we were listening to non-carol. This sounds like weather report. And I wouldn't have ever made that connection if it it had even been loud enough for me to know that it was like a player piano, you know. It was just like, this isn't thinking about, oh, there's something else in this music. I had been listening to this one way, but there was something else. And that's what made me want to do the arrangements. You know, it was like, I wanted to bring out some of those other things.
1: That's interesting to hear someone else describe their kind of listening experience because like I've always felt that like, in a way, the more kind of, I don't want to say turned off, but maybe that's what it is. Like when I first listen to something and I can tell it's very like dense or I'm going to take a lot of effort or that I I often don't actually even like it the first time.
0: Yeah, like, yeah, that can happen. Like
1: Radiohead Kid A is my favorite album ever. And I remember the first few listens through it, I was like, this is some weird nonsense. Where's, where's OK Computer Part 2? Like this is just weird. I really didn't like it. And then one, one day, actually exactly what you describe, I used to listen to albums in, in high school before phones and people just did nothing all the time on their stupid phone. On Friday afternoons, I think it was, I used to come home and just like lay down in bed and kind of almost have a nap, but listen to music. And I would get like almost half asleep sometimes listening to music and like oh, that's the something best. in there would just click. And kid A, I remember I was actually in the car driving with my parents somewhere going across town or whatever. And and it was a late evening, we'd been somewhere, whatever. I happened to kind of nod off in the car, same thing, listening to this music, and I, I, I it just was, I suddenly just got it. I got it
0: all. Oh, it was... Sleeping to music is the best. A, a friend of mine in college, a flutist named Carol eighty, was the person who, who told me that, because we used to do these all-night concerts every year, and people would go, I don't know, I'm afraid I'll fall asleep, and she just would go, sleeping to music is great. That's fantastic. And also because you know, I don't know if you have this experience i have it with writing music but i also have it with you know crossword puzzles or all sorts of things in my life and actually the black star project itself where like you know if you're staring i don't if you're staring at like a puzzle say or trying to figure out a math problem or and you can't see it and then you go to sleep and you wake up the next day and you're like oh i know what that is I mean, I think sleep does a lot of that work for us, and sleeping to music. So that's my advice to the young listeners: out there. <laughs> <laughs> go to sleep. <laughs> sleep. Well, through-
1: <laughs> there's something about that unconscious brain that works, yeah. though. Like, so we were talking about my dishwasher of all things before this, because we had to reschedule this interview because it broke. But um, one of the things that happened was, is I I had a weird thing happen where they were supposed to drop off the dishwasher, but in order to drop it off, they had to pick up the old one and throw it out. But the electrician wasn't coming till the next day and so i was gonna have to uninstall this this stove and so or sorry this dishwasher and it's hardwired so i was a little uncomfortable doing it and anyway so i screwed around with it for like an hour and a half the night before and watching videos and getting all freaked out i was like i'm just gonna go to bed woke up in the morning and 10 minutes before they came to drop off the other one i just was like all right i gotta get this out and i just did it (laughs) and it's like i solved i solved it overnight like i had just i just knew how to do it because i absorbed the information and I just was able to just like sit down and just do it.
0: Absolutely. So and there you it was go.
1: weird. So. Yeah. Not just with dishwashers. It can be music. <laughs> it can be anything. But before we move on from the Black Star and then and then I got a few more questions about your album and then I got to let you go. because It's already been an hour somehow. But um, what was it like working with Donny McCaslin then? Didn't you play a concert with him? Was it the one in Central Park?
0: Yeah. Well, we didn't. Uh, I mean, you know, again, to be fair, I mean, he, he was we got asked to do it in, in Central Park and obviously we agreed. And then. They said we, you know, we're gonna ask Donnie's group to open. And it was like that's fantastic, you know. Um, so we didn't really meet them uh until the you know, the gig. But at the gig, you know, they finished their sound check and I wanted to introduce myself to him and I just told him, you know, I love his organ. And I was like, Would you be willing to play on the encore? And he very graciously agreed and he did that. Uh so he the encore is just an arrangement of Let's Dance, actually. And so he, he just jammed on it and he sounded amazing. Um he's, you know, he's, uh a very, you know, interesting player in his own right. And his music does not sound anything like Black Star.
1: Well, some of the later albums, though, they start to because I guess he was influenced by um, that writing style. And I've actually really been getting into it's funny because I can't remember the name of it right now. But it's that one with him, like the pencil in his mouth on the cover. Uh, what is it called? Blow or something?
0: But I know what I know about him is that he was a very he, he was a jazz police kind of guy. Before that project, you know, like, and uh, I know what you
1: mean, that, Jazz Police.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's great that he opened up. And obviously, I mean, but, but, you know, he does things, like you said, it does not sound like a jazz saxophone record. It's like a very unique voice on that record. So
1: it's, it is called Blow. So check it out. But there's a couple of tracks, especially the first and second. Uh, they're just awesome. And I, I guess that the, the singer on this album, strangely enough, is used to play in a Canadian band called Limb Lifter. And, uh, I've seen him open before for another band I like called Matthew Good. And I was like, this is so weird. It's like worlds are just colliding everywhere. It's, it's so strange. Really, really interesting. So tell me about it, And then we should, uh, should let you go here, but, um, your, your other album of pop tunes. So like, was there, is there something else planned with this? I mean, are you going to record some more kind of contemporary pieces or I'd love to hear some Radiohead.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, so I, uh, you know, like I said, it was kind of accidental that I kind of went oh, wait, to have a record here and sending it to people and then them liking it. And then uh, Big Years asked me to do it there, which was great. So, uh, so uh, you know, that was kind of my like reemergence into the world. I have started making some more, but I, you know, the thing is, like, you put so much time and effort and frankly money into these things. And, and it is worth it in its own right, like I said, but it's just so difficult to make a dent with and you know so i'm not really sure what i'm gonna do next i'm trying you know honestly like i mean i'm doing i did the glass i'm really happy about it but we just put that out as kind of an ep two tracks you know one is 12 minutes and one is 10 minutes doing the terry piece i just uh i was commissioned by um brussels ars musica to write a bass clarinet duet which i just sent off to the other uh bass clarinetist benjamin monreal who i'm looking forward to working with and i'm doing some duos also with a belt up with a Dutch-based clarinetist Fie uh, Schutten, uh, but like I'm trying to get away from the album as the medium now because it uh, clearly is not operative anymore.
1: I was just going to ask you about that. Like, do you find that with, with Spotify has enabled that? I think, and I used to find it like really negative, and now I think I'm warming up to the fact that it might actually be more creative to not have to. Feel pressured to write an hour of music just to put out some music.
0: <laughs> well, it just it just is what it is. I mean, for some reason, the album seemed really natural to me in my generation, and and it, and, and I st- I don't know if I'll ever quite get over that. You know, like forty five minutes—that's you know—or CDs is an hour. You know, that's the right length. You don't need any more than that, but you can't do any less. And I will also say, like, with pop channel certainly, and with this is not a clarinet. Years ago, um, there was a way in which having that. As a sort of well, you need to hit that bar. You need to get that amount of material. And then you need to think about what order it goes in and how it all sounds together. And that actually, you know, is a great device, just like a concert is a great device. Like you have to think about the flow of the concert and the sound of the concert. And like definitely the tracks on Pop Channel were improved by, you know, it's like a wine cellar. Like, you know, you finish the track and like you put it away and you work on some others, and then you go back to it and go. Oh, I got to remix this because of the way this one sounds or what I learned from doing these other things. I don't know how you replace that. But it also has to do with the transparency of the process. Like, I still am of the head that, like, you know, I put out this record, this is my version of it. And that's the way I want you to hear it. I don't want people to hear the outtakes. I don't want people to hear, you know, other versions of it. But that's not the, that's also not the way the world works anymore.
1: Years ago, I was releasing tracks on YouTube before it was cool, back in like 2005, of my recital. And I remember I put some on the clarinet b-board and someone said exactly what you said. Oh, I would take this down. Uh, you're a young player and you're making mistakes in here. And I was like, I, I know I'm making mistakes. It's a, it's my junior recital. I just am excited to get it out there and get some feedback. Like, I don't think it's going to ruin my career, <laughs> you know? No, you're <laughs> right ahead of the
0: curve because now there's there's no secrets. So trying to deal with the no secrets thing is a, is a different thing. So I don't know. I'm working on I'm working on some new arrangements uh but I I actually the one thing I have taken out of it wasn't just the lockdown though we certainly learned this from that but also just what happened with the Black Star experience before that is that and also with other projects that we haven't had time to talk about is that like at least for me I can't predict what's going to end up being important like And so I'm trying to try less, (laughs) you know, like, I mean, I'm trying to just like be open to what comes along and really follow the things that I'm interested in. And where, if they lead somewhere, that's great. And if not, okay, well, at least I did that because I wanted to do it and then do something else, you know? So I don't have any long range (laughs) plan.
1: Well, it's like, did you read that book, the subtle art of not giving a, I can't say it here. I've seen it. I've seen it. I read that. It was actually really interesting because it's like, you have, sometimes you have to care enough not to care, like if you if you it's like hugging someone too hard, like you can you can hurt them, you know. But you know it's funny talking about the the way you're thinking about the album and and the like the, the pressure to fill up 45 minutes. Like I actually experienced exactly this doing my CD project, and it was it was a problem because I ha- I had received funding to do a CD project, and in my mind a CD is an album that should be around 45 minutes to an hour long. Um, but as I was assembling my project, I realized upon listening to the takes and stuff, that there was some improvisation on there. And also there was... I was doing the Chick Corea 20 songs and then some Philip Glass pieces. Um, and I kind of... it's The album ended up being called Dream Songs. And my idea was is that these Chick Corea pieces would be little dreams. And then the, the beginning was going to sleep and the ending was waking up. And that's kind of what the album arc story was. But people maybe don't understand this, but I also put the children's songs out of order in my own planning of way and had one of them segue and stuff like that. Anyways, I put a lot of thought into the track listing and stuff, but I ended up cutting some variations and even taking out some of the improv sections because as I listened to it, I just realized that the instrumentation was like not interesting enough to sustain a full forty five minutes. And I actually think it's a better album at twenty-eight minutes than it would have been at forty-five.
0: Yeah, well, good on you, man. That's I mean it's not easy to do that, but often that's the best thing. But
1: I was so worried about like the, the backlash and nobody cared.
0: <laughs> right. That's
1: the thing. Yeah, nobody you, you worry so much about it. Yeah, and it's just like
0: And I would much rather hear a twenty eight minute album that I love. You know, it was not like, oh, Damn it, now I got 17 minutes to kill?
1: Well, and the short pieces, like, like chilled, I'm just looking at the disc here, pull it up, Children's Song 11, which I did, is, is 49 seconds long, but that's how long it is, you know? What am I supposed to do, just sit there and jam on it for six minutes just to get to 45 minutes on right. the album? No,
0: it makes no sense. Although there is a famous, uh, like, In a Silent Way was not long enough, and uh, the, the Miles Davis record, and Teo Macero just, like, Use the material twice. it It sounds like they're just, they are.
1: So for those listening, um, you'll know that Evan, when he was here last time, we did not do what's called the lightning round. And Evan, you may not have done this or know what this is either. Um, but it's basically some questions I've got at the end for those who support the podcast. Yeah, so if you're listening to the podcast today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, thank you so much for enjoying the show. But you can also get access to an extended version of the show at com slash join. And you can get your first 30 days free with code gold. So use that to try out this episode today. And listen to what Evan has to say. But before we go, Evan, is there anything else you'd like to add to the program or direct people to online?
0: Uh No, uh, I get—I not that I can think of offhand. I, I'd uh, love to hear what people think of of my of the recent music I've been putting out. So
1: yes, yeah, so check it out at evanziporin.com, or sorry, it's uh, Ziporin.com. z-i-p-o-r-y-n.com. he's got a great new website. All his uh, albums and uh, music seem to be up there, and you can check that all out. And uh, thank you again, Evan, for coming on the show.
0: My pleasure, Sean. Let's do it before another six years go.
1: The new Bakun Q-Series Clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series Clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. Use code CLARINET at bacoonmusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bacoon Q-Series or Protégé Clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at bacoonmusical.com and use code CLARINET at checkout. As musicians, we're always looking to improve our playing and understanding of music, but we are often hesitant to work on the business and marketing side. If you're looking to make more money teaching, fill up the gaps in your schedule and find ideal clients to work with who leave you energized instead of drained after a day of teaching. You need to check out clarinetist Kelly Reardon's Outside the Box community. Get a free 30-minute consultation and personalized recommendations from Kelly by mentioning clarinet when you register at kellyreardon.com. That's K-E-L-L-Y-R-I-O-R-D-A-N.com. Also, you might want to check out her recent podcast episode with me, number 174 of the Clarinet Podcast.